0: Dear friends, Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for your prayers, for our work, and for your financial support. Your gifts to Keep the Faith are efficient because they do not support a lot of bulky overhead. Plus, you can be certain that any support you send is used to win souls. Also our monthly KTF Insider reports show you how effective your gifts really are. You can read the stories of how Keep the Faith is changing lives. Thank you for all you do, and thank you for listening to our monthly sermons. I hate getting into doctrinal controversy because it just tends to alienate people, and I'm a networker. (laughs) However, there have been so many people that have been asking me over and over and over again what I believe about the so-called Trinity, that I've just gotten to the place where I believe I must lay out what the inspired sources say about it. I am very loyal to the inspired sources. It doesn't matter to me what anyone else says about any given issue. I want to know the plain, Thus saith the Lord. It doesn't even matter to me what the fallible pioneers have said or believed, though we are encouraged to read their writings, for they have much value. But even the pioneers are subject to the inspired sources. The fact is, they were fallible. Just let me remind you before we begin that we still have the prophetic secrets of the New World Order DVDs that were recorded at the studios of Secrets Unsealed. They are very much appreciated by those who see them. You'll be able to share them with your friends and church members and give them an understanding of the times in which we live. You can contact us to order them. Also remember to sign up for our daily email briefings or follow us on Facebook or Twitter to receive our notices and updates. Furthermore, I recommend that you sign up for the updates to our YouTube channel. All of these will keep you up to date on the current developments in Bible prophecy. As we begin our study today, let us pray and ask our Heavenly Father to send the Holy Spirit to teach us. Our Heavenly Father, we do not want to be deceived. We do not want to have our lives messed up by confusion and misunderstanding of the very thing that should be our clear guide, the Word of God. The Word is the anchor of soul. The Word is the foundation of our faith. But the enemy, your enemy and ours, is working to create false doctrine that will lead us astray. Please send your Holy Spirit to us today as we study about his powerful work. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's begin with a scripture text. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you can, to 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Listen carefully. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Friends, this warning is given to us who are living at the end times. It suggests that if we aren't careful, there will be deceptive attempts by Satan to take us away from the sound doctrine. What is the seducing spirit? It is a tempter that is trying to get us to leave the path of rectitude, and the doctrine of devils is one that is not found in the Bible. Often the enemy twists the Bible from its true interpretation or misrepresents it to get you to think that his doctrines are really God's doctrines. But this is dangerous, very dangerous. Here's another warning. Ephesians four fourteen and 15 says that if we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. Friends, I'm bringing you this sermon today because I must speak the truth in love. I realize that I will not change the minds of many who are in error on these points, but I must still raise my voice and do my best to help you and all of our subscribers, listeners, and readers, and others to understand the principle that is involved. You need the defenses that so many who do not know the word very well or who have never studied on this subject do not have you will need them to keep you on solid ground. The subject we are going to study today is actually very simple to understand, at least in principle. However there are many who are confused by what they hear, nevertheless. Those who are weak in the faith are often made to feel that if they do not accept the alternative view to the truth of the inspired text, they will somehow be lost eternally. And there are a number of leaders in the anti-Trinitarian movement that play psychological games with people's minds so that they are ready to accept that which is false as if it were special light sent from heaven yet isn't that the way satan would want it to be so deceptive that it would deceive even the very elect i do not take up this subject lightly It has an important place in the end-time stream of events, for every wind of doctrine will be blowing in the last days. Nor do I share these things with you to enter into debate. I want to help you understand what is behind the deception concerning the Holy Spirit, and also the shocking place where it is leading. I pray that you are willing to hear and see the truth. For if you do, you will be spared the falsehood or the conflict with your pride over giving it up, if you have accepted it. Moreover, another reason I have chosen to finally do a sermon on this topic, after much hesitation and personal rest wrestling, is because I do want to see souls saved in the kingdom. I believe that there may be someone, somewhere, that would come out of their error and unite with the truth. Plus, I want to help anyone who is not in that error to resist the enemy and not get into it. Lastly, I appeal to anyone who has accepted the false doctrines of those who teach that the Holy Spirit is only an influence of Christ to break free of this dangerous error. Listen to the sermon that I share with you today. But before we go further, I would like you to think about this. In any false doctrine, there are key principles that always lead to disaster, and those key principles are the reasons why deception gets a foothold with any soul. The underlying principle in any false doctrine is Bible interpretation. If you are prepared to interpret the Bible according to your own mind, you will be deceived. If you are prepared to only follow the clearest, thus saith the Lord, you will be spared. The enemy has a trap for every sincere soul. He knows how to spin a teaching so that it is attractive to those who would be caught up with no other false doctrine. He titillates the mind with What ifs and could it be? Error always leads away from salvation, my friends. We must stay a long way away from error if we are to survive spiritually. That means that we will pursue the knowledge of God with correct principles. Here's another scripture that should be familiar to all of us. It's from Luke 10, verse 7. Listen carefully. And he, answering, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Friends, we are called to love God with all we've got. We are to have a heart, mind, and soul love for God. And we are to do it with all our strength. What does this mean? It means, friends, that we are not to just have a superficial love for God. We can't just go to church every week, pay our tithes and offerings, and think that that's all we need to do. Too many of us are spiritually lazy. Your spiritual life needs to run deep, right down to the bottom of your hearts, to the deepest recesses of the mind, and with every breath we take. That's some kind of love, isn't it? Many who teach false doctrines often tell me how much their favorite doctrine has enhanced their love relationship with Christ. But friends, what is it really? While they're blinding their minds to the true principles of the character of God, how can they love Him with all their minds? If they're turning their backs on what God has said about Himself, to take up subject that He has not been pleased to clearly reveal, how can they love Him with all their hearts and with all their souls? There may be a good feeling, But all error leads away from a true relationship with Christ. In fact, in some, if not many, who teach the so-called pioneer view of the Holy Spirit, it has become their life passion. They can talk of nothing else. They have to bring it up in some way in every conversation. It has become their claim to having special light, their chance at holding something that is not held by the majority of God's people, setting them apart from the rest. And some people like that place. However, don't forget that the truth sets us apart from most others. We don't need error to do that. In this age, we have so many errors that are coming into God's church that those who hold to the truth alone will be very distinct indeed. Many years ago, long before I took on Keep the Faith ministry, one of the leaders of the so-called anti-Trinitarian movement contacted me and urged me to read his views in a book on the subject. I was willing at the time to consider the views of those teaching this topic because I wanted to be sure that I was on the right track. I did not want to be deceived. I decided I would listen to what this anti-Trinitarian leader had to say. But I have a foolproof principle that I use in judging every new doctrine and every new light that comes my way. It is simple, nothing complex, but it is infallible. I said to myself and to the Lord, that I would review his material unless and until I run into something that he taught that contradicted with any clear statement in the Bible or the spirit of prophecy. Fortunately in my life, I've been associated with some mentors who gave me a healthy loyalty to the plain teachings of Scripture and a clear and cogent but simple process by which I could tell the difference between truth and error. This gave me a set of the most important keys to unlock and understand whether any teaching is from God or from the enemy. I plan to share this key with you today. Furthermore, I am a person that investigates matters and I do not jump onto any exciting theological bandwagon very easily. I only lock onto something when I can see that it harmonizes with the truths of sacred and inspired writ. My many years in ministry have taught me that loyalty to these sources of inspired writings is the only safety. A clear, thus saith the Lord, must be the foundation of everything I believe and everything you believe if you want to be saved. Notice I said a clear, thus saith the Lord. I did not say any statement of inspired writing. That's because there are many unclear statements that could be interpreted any number of ways leading to truth or falsehood, depending on how you interpreted them and how you compared them with the clear statements. The whole experience with this anti-Trinitarian leader ended up being very revealing. I invited the anti-Trinitarian leader to my office to discuss the matter with me. He came, no doubt hoping for yet another convert. One of the things he taught me was that the Trinity doctrine was an invention of the Roman Catholic Church. I already knew this, I had also determined never to refer to the Godhead as the Trinity in my classes or sermons as this would only confuse people about what I believe. I believe that all of us must be very careful with our expressions. If we use the wrong word, we can give the wrong impression. So be careful that you don't give people the idea that you believe in the Trinity by using those words. I did not really understand the Roman Catholic concept of the Trinity as well as I should. The anti-Trinitarian leader actually gave me quite an insight. He explained to me that the Roman Church teaches that the Trinity is three persons in one substance, something like a three-headed monster. That insight really helped me to understand eventually how the anti-Trinitarians among us today operate. They use a truly false doctrine of the Roman Church to attack the true doctrine of Scripture, as if it is the same thing. They make the truth sound like Roman Catholic teaching. They end up in another ditch that keeps them from accepting the truth because to their minds it brings them back toward Catholicism. There's a wide distinction between the teaching of Scripture and Catholic teaching concerning the Holy Spirit and the Trinity for that matter. But these so-called anti-Trinitarians have confounded the two concepts and made the distinction of none effect. But let us explore for a few minutes the history of the Catholic concept of the Trinity. It will help us understand this question better. The Catholic Trinity doctrine comes from paganism. In most pagan religions there were always, it seems, a triad of gods. The Babylonians certainly understood their gods this way. Their religion included a father, a mother, and a child, a male child. The Egyptians also had a threesome of deities, Isis, Horus, and Set, or IHS. This one, in particular, has been incorporated within the Roman Catholic concept of the Trinity. The Greeks and the Assyrians had a three-person God concept, too. So do the Hindus, the Brahmins, the Krishna, and a host of others. Many of them teach a three-headed God. In fact, Alexander Hislop, in his famous book, The Two Babylons, which explains ancient and modern Babylon, writes the following statement. While overlaid with idolatry, The recognition of a trinity was universal in all the ancient nations of the world, proving how deep-rooted in the human race was the primeval doctrine on this subject. Some of those who teach that there are not three persons in the true Godhead suggest that since all pagan religions come from the enemy, the concept of the three-person Godhead in Christianity originated from Satan too. This can't be further from the truth. Let me ask you, Where did the devil get the idea of a three-person godhead? Think about Lucifer's position in heaven. Before his fall, Lucifer, the son of the morning, was a covering cherub, holy and undefiled, clothed with precious jewels. He stood in the presence of the great Creator, upon the holy mountain of God, where he ministered in the midst of the stones of fire. And because he ministered in God's very presence, God's glory rested upon him. See Isaiah 14.12 and Ezekiel 28.13-15. As the covering cherub, Lucifer would know about the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The fact is, it would have been impossible for him not to know about them. He had daily conversation and association with them. He knew them as intimately as any created being can know his Creator. So here is another anecdotal way that we can know that there is a three-person Godhead. Lucifer knew about it because he counterfeited it in every false religion he controls on earth. Satan has counterfeited everything that God is or does. Do counterfeiters produce likenesses of things that do not exist? Have you ever heard of a counterfeit three-dollar bill? Doesn't the existence of the counterfeit indicate the existence of the genuine? God has a sabbath, Satan has a counterfeit sunday. God has baptism by immersion, Satan has a counterfeit sprinkling. God has prophets, Satan has false prophets. God has a gift of tongues, Satan has the counterfeit tongues which is essentially gibberish. God has divine healing, Satan has pretended healing. God has faith. Satan has presumption. God has conditional immorality for the faithful. Satan has natural immortality for everybody. God has fire that will destroy the wicked. Satan has a false doctrine of fire that will never stop burning the wicked and so on. Satan is a master counterfeiter. In view of these realities and his intimate knowledge of the three persons of the true Godhead, wouldn't he counterfeit this heavenly relationship too? It's obvious that he did, by looking at his pagan religions, including his subtle mixture of truth and error on the subject taught even by most Christians. 1 John 5.7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. The biblical concept of the Godhead combines unity with individuality in a way that no human mind can explain. It is the given which we have. Here is a little fictitious story that illustrates my point. Suppose I came to your church to speak, and you and a lovely lady were sitting on the front row. I come over to speak to you, and before the service begins, "'Sir,' I say to you, "'who is that lady beside you?' You answer, "'She is my wife.' Then I say, "'You must think I am pretty dumb. I have been to school, and I know how to count.' The Bible states clearly in Genesis 2 verse 24 and Ephesians 5:31, that when a man and a woman marry, they become one. But you two are certainly not one. You are two. I'm not blind. Don't try to tell me that you're married because you're not one. Anyone listening to this exchange would say, Pastor Mayor, you are making a fool out of yourself. And you would be right. But how many times have people used the same idea when the subject of the Trinity is brought up? How can these three individuals in the Godhead be independent individuals yet at the same time one? Well, it's the same way as a man and a wife become one. And this is not something that can be explained easily, if at all. The scripture says, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? Job 11, verse 7. The oneness of the Godhead is a truth stated and that we understand vaguely, but it cannot be explained especially perfectly. We have been told as much as we need to know. We are advised to accept it and move on, wasting no time in conjectures or speculations about the nature of the three-person Godhead. We have been given what we need to know, but that's all. God has left this concept somewhat unclear in the Bible, and there is a reason why. We may not understand the reason, but we have to accept it by faith that it is true. There are many things in Scripture that we have to accept by faith. To try to define this more than the Scripture or the Spirit of Prophecy does will lead to controversies and confusion and the loss of souls. Moreover, it will do something else very serious that I will explain in a few minutes. The concept of the Trinity, as foisted on the Christian world by the Roman Catholic Church, was not manufactured out of thin air. The enemy is counterfeiting what he saw in the heavenly courts. They got their three-headed monsters from paganism, like so many other things. They have consequently distorted the truth about the Godhead. Because the term Trinity is not found in the Bible, and because its precise meaning has engendered much strife throughout Christian history, we choose to use the expression, the three persons of the Godhead, or more simply, the Godhead. The Catholic Church not only adopted the concept of the Trinity, it adopted the characteristics of the pagan deities and applied them to their teaching concerning the Trinity. Many mystical concepts arose in the Catholic concept of the Godhead. For instance, the angry God of pagan teaching became the God who would burn you in hell for your sins. This led to a whole set of theological errors, including Mariology and Mariolatry. After all, someone had to appease the angry God, and Mary was the one chosen to do this. Also, other false doctrines arise in logical development of the angry God theory, such as purgatory, infant baptism, and a host of other papal errors. Understanding this helped me to understand why the pioneers were so reticent to accept a three-person godhead. The early pioneers that came out from the various Protestant churches also had a strong aversion to Roman Catholic teaching. It was quite different than what Protestants, or Evangelicals as they like to be called, believe today. They have accepted Roman Catholic teaching on the Trinity, for the most part, but back then they rightly understood Rome to be leading the world astray, and they saw the Trinity, a three-headed monster of three persons in one substance, as the foundation of Catholic false doctrine. I do not believe that we should be using the term Trinity. It only confuses those who do not understand the truth for this time and makes them think that one of the cardinal teachings of the Bible is the Roman Catholic idea of the Trinity, when in reality the Bible teaches something quite different. Many who hold to the anti-Trinitarian doctrine are very sincere sounding. They will tell you that They only want to know the truth and that they're just wanting an answer to their questions. And they expect you to answer them. And for those who don't really know their Bibles, this becomes a trap. They aren't actually telling you the truth. Their questions are already answered for them. Their minds are not only satisfied with the answers at which they have arrived, they are convinced of them and they have become zealous in proselytizing them, and they prey on the unwary people in your church that are vulnerable to their specious suggestions. What they're really saying is that they want you to answer their questions so they can lead you to a false premise and a false conclusion. Their questions are often leading questions that open up an opportunity for them to try and infuse their premises and their conclusions into your mind. These are the masters of spin. They spin the unclear statements to say something that cannot be clearly established by the statements they use. This leads them to spin the clear statements in a way that supports their false doctrine, but more on that later. If you don't have a strong loyalty to a clear, thus saith the Lord, as the basis of every doctrine you hold, you can easily be led down the path to false teaching by unclear statements. These anti-Trinitarians use those questions to drag their unwary victim into debate. Friends, these people would not consider themselves to be of the devil, yet that is exactly who is using them, and you can never enter into a debate with the enemy of souls and win. So many people have fallen for the false interpretations of unclear statements of inspiration that these teachings have become quite widespread. If you don't understand how to correctly interpret Scripture, not only will you be led down the path to a wrong concept of the Holy Spirit, but you will also be led down the path to a wrong concept of the eternal preexistence of Christ and of the feast days, the lunar Sabbath, and a host of other false doctrines. If you accept... One wind of false doctrine, you will likely be tossed about to another and another and to another. Some of them are connected, and they logically fit together. Incidentally, virtually every error is logical. It is based on a false premise. Once you accept that false premise, it is easy to take you logically to the false conclusion. Listen to this statement from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, page 74 and 75. There are some in the Church who need to cling to the pillars of our faith, to settle down and find rock bottom, instead of drifting on the surface of excitement and moving from impulse. There are spiritual dyspeptics in the Church. They are self-made invalids. Their spiritual debility is the result of their own wavering course. They are tossed about here and there by the changing winds of doctrine and are often confused and thrown into uncertainty because they move entirely by feeling. They are sensational Christians, ever hungering for something new and diverse. Strange doctrines confuse their faith, and they are worthless to the cause of God." While not every point here is applicable to all promoters of false doctrine, many of them are. In fact, going from one false teaching to the next is one of the consequences of this. The anti-Trinitarian leader gave me his material to study. It was apparent to me that he was teaching that the Holy Spirit is not a separate and distinct person as Jesus is a separate and distinct person from God. He was teaching that the Holy Spirit is only the influence of Christ, or Christ's Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is really only part of Christ. He's not a separate, distinct being. As I reviewed his material, something struck me. He was using many different statements of the Bible and spirit of prophecy, none of which clearly stated what he was proposing as correct doctrine concerning the Godhead. They were all unclear statements. He would ask me questions like, could these statements be saying thus and so, or could it be that this statement is saying such and such? I could see very clearly that he was trying to construct a doctrine to fit his own idea of what he thought the statements should be saying. My principles of Bible interpretation are quite set in my mind, and I know that I cannot base my understanding of truth on unclear statements of the inspired sources. I must base my faith on the clear statements, then harmonize unclear statements with the clear ones to establish and mature my understanding of the doctrine. So I did a little research in the Inspired Council. Here are some of the clear statements I found relating to the nature of the Holy Spirit. Notice John 14, 16. John 14, 16. Jesus is speaking about the future comforter that he will send to his disciples after he's taken back into heaven. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Did you notice that Jesus said he would ask the Father to send another comforter? In other words, the Father would send someone that is different from the Father and from Christ. In John 15.26, Jesus says similarly, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, he shall testify of me. Did you notice that John clarified where the Holy Spirit comes from? He comes from the Father, not from Christ. Therefore, the Holy Spirit cannot be merely the influence of Christ. What often happens is that teachers of false doctrine create confusion about even the clear statements of inspiration. They put a false spin on them and ask questions that are designed to unsettle your faith in the plainest, the clearest, and most obvious meaning of the statement. There's no need for confusion, my friends. The Holy Spirit is a separate and distinct being without bodily form. He is of the same understanding as Christ and the Father. They all work together. Here is another Bible statement that tells us that the Holy Spirit is not merely the influence of Christ, but that He is actually the third person of the Godhead. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 3, verses 15-17. through And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This familiar passage is actually a rather powerful confirmation that the Holy Spirit is a third entity or person in the Godhead. First of all, the Apostle Matthew testifies that the Holy Spirit was present at Christ's baptism. But there is more. Some people dare to suggest that the Spirit of God, which is one of the names of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, was actually the Spirit of the Father instead of the third person of the Godhead. But if you are being guided by the Scripture, this concept is unsustainable. No one in their right mind would claim that the parallel name for Christ, the Son of God, is referring to Christ as part of God the Father. Yet they try to suggest that the name for the Holy Spirit, which is expressed in the same way, refers to the influence of the Father. This makes no sense to say that the Son of God is a separate and distinct individual, while saying that the Spirit of God is not a separate and distinct individual. This illogical conclusion is further addressed by the Apostle Paul in his account of his visit to Ephesus. In Acts 19, 1-5 we read the following. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people, that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The fact that we are to baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit is an important and distinct part of the Godhead. Otherwise, Christ would not have given this specific instruction to his disciples. But Paul takes it further. The fact that these Ephesians were not baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit tells us that this is very important. John the Baptist was baptizing in the name of the Father. If the dove that landed on Christ was the influence of the Father and not a separate third being of the Godhead, then why would it be so important for the Ephesians to be rebaptized? Again, the idea that there are only two persons in the Godhead is illogical. It is impossible to conclude that the dove that landed on Christ is the influence of the Father, because if it was, there would have been no need for these believers to be rebaptized. John further makes this point when he says plainly in John 3.11, that he did not baptize with the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Mark, in his gospel, records John's testimony using similar language to describe the difference between baptism of John and the baptism of Christ. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized of John in the Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased. Mark 1, verse 8 through 11. These words again tell us that John did not baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit. Luke also refers to the Holy Spirit in his Gospel. Listen to how he describes the scene. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape, like a dove, upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased, Luke three twenty-one and 22. It is clear from these scriptures that at Christ's baptism there were three persons of the Godhead present, Christ in human form, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and the Father by His voice. How anyone can conjecture and speculate that there were only two makes absolutely no common sense. Notice that these Bible verses do not say that the Holy Spirit is not a separate, distinct person from the other two divine beings in the Godhead. But based on the preponderance of evidence that clearly shows that none of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, understood the Godhead to be any other than three separate and distinct persons, we must conclude that they were right and the pioneers were wrong. Yet, here is another testimony concerning the three-person Godhead in the Acts of the Apostles, written by Dr. Luke. Again, the good doctor makes it clear that we are to understand that the Holy Spirit is separate and distinct from the other two members of the Godhead. And I quote Acts 1, through 1-5. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he through the holy ghost had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Notice that Luke mentions all three persons separately from each other. First, he mentions the things that Jesus began to do. Then he says that the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. In fact, Christ gave the commandments through the Holy Ghost, which clearly distinguishes Christ from the Holy Ghost. Then he mentions Jesus who showed himself alive after his passion. Then he mentions that Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God during those 40 days while he was still with his disciples. Again, in chapter 10, verse 36 to 48, he lists all three members of the Godhead. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Notice how he incorporates all three persons of the Godhead in his description, God the Father anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Son, with the Holy Ghost, the Spirit. How could God anoint Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit if the Holy Ghost was merely the influence of Christ? And if the Holy Spirit was merely the influence of Christ, how then could Luke put it this way? Was Luke wrong in his testimony? I happen to believe that Luke knew more about the Godhead than I do, and I also happen to believe that Luke knew more about the Godhead than these anti-Trinitarian teachers for they use uninspired sources such as the pioneers to determine their doctrine while overthrowing the plain teachings of scripture concerning the godhead. Let us now look at the testimony of the apostle John. Turn to John chapter 1 verse 32 to 34. And John bare record saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, Christ. And I knew him not, Christ. But he that sent me to baptize with water the same, which is the Father through the Holy Spirit, said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, Christ, that is, and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist did not know who Christ was. The Holy Spirit or an angel was sent to him from God the Father who instructed him to baptize with water and explained to him that when Christ came for baptism he should look for confirmation of the Messiah by the descent of the Holy Spirit on him in the form of a dove. All three persons of the Godhead were involved in John's ministry and in the identification of the Messiah. Here is yet another plain statement of the distinction between Christ and the Spirit as two separate beings. Turn to John 3, verse 33 and 34. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent, Christ, that is, speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. First, notice that John did not say, God giveth not his Spirit by measure unto him. He said, God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him clearly distinguishing the spirit from the other two members of the Godhead. This is not the only testimony of John concerning the three persons of the heavenly trio. John 14, 15, and 16 have at least six verses that clearly state the three persons of the Godhead. Paul and Peter each give similar testimony to the three-person Godhead. To come to the conclusion that the Godhead is only two persons, The anti-trinitarians have to do considerable intellectual gymnastics, and must wrest the clear statements of scripture out of their settings. These anti-trinitarians cannot put their intellectual gymnastics over on anyone that knows the secret about the interpretation of inspiration. You must always take the clear statements of inspiration as the foundation of your understanding of truth. You never base your understanding of truth on the flimsy evidence of unclear statements. No one can say that the Holy Spirit is not the third person of the Godhead. They are simply in error. No matter how many reams of unclear statements they may throw at you, and no matter how many arguments designed to confuse are made, no matter how many late-night Bible study sessions are required to try to get you to accept their ideas, it does not make their ideas correct, or the plain statements of Holy Writ to be in error. They simply do not have the authority to overthrow the plain teachings of the Word of God. Yet some people who want to come up with theories that are unsound refuse to recognize these facts of Scripture because they have convinced themselves of their human interpretation of the divine Godhead. They try to show that the preponderance of evidence is all supporting their views in spite of the fact that the statements they use from the inspired sources are merely inferential and unclear and can be interpreted a number of different ways. But in order to do this, they have to find a way to eliminate the testimony of the plain and clear statements of the inspired sources. So they suggest that they must not be understood as they were written. Or they have to brush them off by saying that they were tampered with, or that the unclear statements of the inspired record are not really part of the inspired record and were added by uninspired authors whom they cannot name. To maintain their speculation concerning the third person of the Godhead, they have to abuse the scripture and come to the conclusion that their personal views are of more value than the clearly stated inspired record. But friends, we are told that one sentence of scripture is of more value than 10,000 of man's ideas or arguments. That's from the seventh volume of the Testimonies, page 71, and we've just reviewed several of them. Friends, if it is so important for us to understand the Holy Spirit is not a third person of the Godhead, and that He was just the influence of Christ, as the anti-Trinitarian teachers want you to accept, wouldn't at least one of these writers of Holy Scripture have told us so in plain, unequivocal terms? Would there not be evidence that they were wrong in what they had actually written? Would they not have said these things a bit differently if they understood that there were only two members of the Godhead? We would certainly have abundant clear evidence that perhaps at first they misstated their views and were corrected by Paul or the Apostle John or an angel or someone else, something like the pioneers. Wouldn't God have identified the problem and pointed out that they misunderstood the truth on this matter? When a man or woman places their own personal false theories in opposition to the inspired counsel, and maintain them even though the inspired counsel is clear and unambiguous, they have to be quite arrogant. But worse, they put themselves in judgment of the Word of God. In this case, they place the writings of the pioneers above the inspired text, and they try to make the pioneers judges of the message of Scripture. This, my friends, is turning the Bible on its head. They turned their backs on the Godhead itself, and in particular the Holy Ghost, who said through the Apostle Timothy, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. You cannot correct many of these people by showing them these scriptures. They cling to their teaching for all their worth. They cannot bear to admit that they were wrong. Can you imagine discovering that you were wrong only when it's too late and losing your own salvation over a doctrine that you thought was right based on your own prideful way of placing yourself above the inspired sources? Imagine, discovering only too late, that all you had taught to others about this was terribly wrong and that you had led others astray as well. When I went to the spirit of prophecy to see what statements were there, and whether they were clear or not concerning the nature of the Holy Spirit, I discovered these. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. That's Desire of Ages, page 671. So, it was obvious to me that the spirit of prophecy clearly says that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, not the influence of the second person of the Godhead. Here's another statement I found. The prince of the power of evil can only be held in check by the power of God in the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. That's from Evangelism, page 617. Again, it's obvious that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, not merely the influence of the second person. Then I found this statement from a manuscript of a talk given at Avondale College in Australia. We have to realize that the Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking through these grounds. That's found in Evangelism, page 616. Then I ran into this statement, which also clearly states that the Holy Spirit has a personality. It's from Evangelism 617. The Holy Spirit has a personality, else He could not bear witness to our spirits, and with our spirits, that we are the children of God. He must also be a divine person, else He could not search out the secrets which lie hidden in the mind of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. And here is one more that I discovered. It too is found in Evangelism, page 617. We are to cooperate with the three highest powers in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these powers will work through us, making us workers together with God. This passage harmonizes with 1 John 5-7, which says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. While there has been a lot of debate over whether 1 John 5-7 was actually written by the Apostle John, or whether it was added to the manuscript to bolster the idea of the Trinity, there is evidence that this verse is authentic indeed. In the second century... Now notice, the 2nd century, the Bishop of Antioch references the Trinity in a letter he wrote. Now this would not be the Roman Catholic concept because the Catholic Church adopted its own views on the Trinity at the Council of Constantinople in 381, the 4th century. That was 200 years later. The Bishop of Antioch's letter is significant because it was in the eastern region of Christianity which had protected the letters and manuscripts of the apostles from corruptions that were being incorporated into them over in Alexandria, Egypt. But 1 John 5.7 is not the only verse in the Bible that clearly states the three-person nature of the Godhead. Notice these verses. Matthew twenty-eight verse nineteen, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. If the Holy Spirit were only the mere influence of Christ, why would Christ tell us to baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit? That would be like saying, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Son's influence. It just makes no sense. Here's another one. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. 2 Corinthians 13.14 If we take what these anti-Trinitarian teachers are telling us and apply it to this verse, it would read something like this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the influence of Christ be with you all. Amen. Again, this is mere redundancy, and it doesn't make sense. If we took 1 John 5.7 and did the same thing, we would have... For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the influence of the Word, and these three are one. This only confuses the clarity of the verse. So clearly there are three persons in the Godhead, which includes the Holy Spirit. Not two in the Godhead, with one of them having an influence that He sheds abroad on the earth, called the Holy Spirit. Why would God give a name to an influence or a force? Yet, for some reason, our early pioneers were unclear in their understanding of the Godhead. And there was some confusion. They were throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as the old saying goes. At least for a while, they rejected the idea of a three-person Godhead because the Roman Catholic Church had corrupted the truth. So they correctly did not want to use the term Trinity or promote that concept. They knew that this would only lead down the wrong track. They did not understand that there are, in fact, three persons in the Godhead in spite of Roman Catholicism's false teachings on the subject. Eventually God's messenger clarified the matter, and the controversy over the Trinity ceased among the pioneers. And though some say that we have to look to what the pioneers taught because God's messenger said to do that, we cannot take their word on something that has been clearly established otherwise by inspiration. The pioneers were wonderful people, no doubt, and they were sincere and they were godly, but on this point they were wrong. While the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Trinity is not based on truth or scripture, we are not to dismiss the personality of the Holy Spirit either. When I considered the clear inspired counsel concerning the three persons in the Godhead, I wrote an email to my anti-Trinitarian leader friend and included many of the clear statements of inspiration on the subject. I asked him to provide a clearer statement than the ones I had found that would support his theory. I pointed out that the statement I was asking for would need to make it abundantly clear that I'm not to take the statements I had shown him at face value, but understand them differently from what they actually said. He responded to my email with more unclear statements. "'Could it not be?' he asked." That this statement means thus and so maybe this concept would be clear if we understood this other statement etc etc i wrote back to him and said i do not base my faith on ifs buts and maybes and could it be's etc i need a clear statement that makes it obvious that the ones i had found and presented to him were not to be understood the way they were written he responded with more unclear statements and i pointed out that the statements he presented to me could be taken Any number of ways, or at least either way. After several rounds of this, I asked him if he understood the nature of inspiration the same as I do. Specifically, I asked whether or not we can take the prophet at face value, or if we have liberty to interpret her writings according to unclear statements and what we might think they mean. His response was, that we cannot take the prophet at face value, and that we have to understand inspired comments according to the weight and preponderance of evidence. I responded back to him by saying that one sentence of a clear thus saith the Lord to me outweighs all of the weight of evidence of all the unclear statements with all their ifs, buts, and maybes that can be presented. The preponderance of evidence must fall first and foremost with the clear statements of inspiration, Appropriate Bible interpretation always takes the clear statements as the foundation and brings the unclear statements into harmony with them. With his method of interpreting the Bible, one could make the Bible say anything that one wanted it to say. Friends, we must not base our faith on such a flimsy foundation. I pointed out to this leader of the anti-Trinitarian movement that he had set himself up in the place of God to correct the prophets. And with that, I told him that since we do not have the same concept of the authority of inspiration, I could not continue the discussion any further unless we came into unity on that underlying issue. And friends, this is the way it still is with all those who teach false doctrine. They will always have to reinterpret the clear statements that don't line up with their special false doctrine that has come to mean so much to them or they will have to find a way to excuse themselves from understanding the clear statements as they are written. Many have chosen this second tactic. They try to say that the inspired statements were tampered with or added in by others, similar to the text in 1 John 5, 7. But if you ask them to go to the original manuscripts and read them in the original handwriting, they just won't do it. They prefer their delusion, and they don't want to accept evidence that contradicts their pet theories. And this brings us to the devastating result of all this. This method of interpreting the inspired sources essentially makes of none effect that authority and the message of the prophets. This one frightful destination to where the anti-Trinitarian false doctrine leads wipes out and eliminates all that God has done for the last generation of His church on earth. It undermines everything that God is trying to show them about His truth. To show you this, I want to read a statement from Maranatha, page 158. Listen carefully. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish, Proverbs 19 18. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. Friends, rejecting the three-person Godhead leads to making of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God because it sets the so-called anti-Trinitarians above the defining and authoritative role of the inspired counsel of the Lord. This is part of the very last deception of Satan. It leads its adherents to block from their minds any inspired statement they don't think is valid based on their human reasoning. This also tells me that we are very close to the close of probation, since there are many among us who overthrow the counsel of the Lord in this way. The enemy does not care how it's done. He only cares that it is done. Friends, what do you believe about the authority of inspiration? Do you believe that there is a way that you can circumvent that authority by your own ideas construed from unclear statements of inspiration? Or do you accept the scripture as it reads and is meant to be clearly understood, even by the simplest of minds. Oh, friends, don't be misled by those claiming to have new light from heaven in regard to the nature and personality of the Godhead. Use the clear, inspired statements to establish your understanding of truth. Then bring the unclear statements into harmony with them. Scripture will not contradict itself, so if someone comes to you and tries to suggest that there are contradictions to the plain teachings of the Bible, you know right off the bat that they are in error. Romans one verse twenty says, "For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Friends don't be left without an excuse let us pray father in heaven we want to only hold pure doctrines from scripture we want to be able to teach them to others so that they may have a true understanding of god please father in jesus christ we pray that we will be ready to accept the clear statements of the inspired writings and reject any interpretation of the unclear statements that would conflict with the clear ones Thank you for Jesus, who forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, pride, or arrogance, and for the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, who guides us and empowers us against the deceptions of the enemy. We pray that you will free us from any false interpretations of your word and your will. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: What poor, despised company. Of travelers, are these that walk in yonder narrow way along that rugged maze? Oh, I'd rather be the least of them that are the Lord's alone than wear a so mean and why so much despised because of their rich robes unseen the world is not apprised oh I'd rather be the least of them that are the lords alone than where a robe. But some of them seem poor, distressed and lacking daily bread are there of boundless wealth possessed with heavenly manna fed. Oh, I'd rather be the least of them that are the Lords then wear a royal diadem and sit upon a throne. But why keep they the narrow road that rugged thorny maze? Why, that's the way they lead a trod. They love keep his ways. Oh, I'd rather be the least of them that are the Lord's alone than where
0: hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message your prayers and gifts mean much to us and thank you so much for your support if you've been impressed by this message and it has blessed your soul please consider making a gift to help some other poor souls find their way to heaven through the cds from keep the faith the song you have just heard is called the pilgrims sung by the three angels corral It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called On Our Journey Home. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry, and if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention the On Our Journey Home CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our Monthly Prophetic Intelligence Briefing, a feature that brings you current events in the light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month Collective Demonization in the End Times. One hundred years ago this year, during the winter of 1917, The French freighter Mont Blanc, laden with picric acid and TNT, destined for the European war effort, headed into the great harbor of Halifax to join a convoy bound for Bordeaux. A Norwegian ship, the IMO, was leaving Halifax at the same time, destined for New York. Its mission was to bring food and supplies back to the people in German-occupied Belgium and northern France. Because of miscommunication, the Mont Blanc and the IMO collided, leading to a massive explosion that killed 2,000 people and sent smoke more than two miles high. This was the largest man-made explosion on Earth until that time. The small German population of Nova Scotia came under attack as the slogan, Place the Blame, stirred the people with vengeance. Because who else could be responsible for the calamity besides the Kaiser? And weren't all Germans, therefore, collectively culpable? At first, reports emerged of rampaging crowds, stoning neighbors with German-sounding names. But less than a week after the explosion, before the fires were even put out, or all the bodies recovered, let alone buried, the Canadian military ordered the arrest of every German citizen. Collective guilt is all too common throughout history. Regardless of whether punishment is meted out because of political economic or religious differences the jews cruelly oppressed by pharaoh the christians persecuted by nero non-catholics on the iberian peninsula tortured by inquisitors and the reverse catholics tormented by oliver cromwell the consequences of collective blame and punishment people leaving their homes in mass in search of freedom and safety are also familiar We see them today as people flee Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, and as refugees flood into Europe or knock at America's door. Can looking back inform our present? Throughout the millennia, societies have been frightened by people that are of a different culture, language, and especially religious differences, often leading to wars between religion. In the 15th century, Andalusia, An 800-year-old Muslim-majority civilization on the Iberian Peninsula fell to Catholic invaders from the north. Jewish and Muslim converts to Catholicism were brought before a tribunal of inquisitors bent on flushing out religious heretics and purifying their peninsula. Their torture tactics were legendary. In 1492, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella enacted a decree ordering the Jews and Jewesses of our kingdoms to depart and never return, or come back to them, or to any of them. Men and women whose ancestors had lived there for hundreds of years were given three months to dispose of themselves and their possessions and their estates, and to leave with royal safeguard. About 165,000 people immigrated to Europe and North Africa. Some 20,000 of them died as they searched for new homelands. In more recent times, the restoration of the state of Israel resulted in the expulsion of Jews from many Arabic-speaking Muslim-majority nations. When a society is frightened by real or imagined terror, it looks to find a scapegoat and assign blame. The blame is often allotted to one collective group or subset of society as the scapegoat. Germany and Europe are currently dealing with this in regard to the massive migration of Muslims into the EU. "'America is currently dealing with this issue "'with regard to Muslims from countries "'that sponsor terrorist organizations "'and Hispanics from Latin America. "'It is also angry with faceless elites "'who they believe have robbed them of their greatness "'and their economic stability. "'The Germans of Halifax were slowly exonerated "'after the captain of the Mont Blanc, "'was arrested and charged with manslaughter. "'The charges against him were later dropped "'for lack of evidence.' But trauma within their community remained. In addition to experiencing the fires, tsunami, and deaths that followed the Mont Blanc explosion, the trust of neighbors had been breached. The Bible predicts that collective blame will continue and will strengthen until hostility to Sabbatarians will become so intense that they will eventually face death at the hands of angry mobs. Their execution will be supported by a dictatorial decree and other oppressive measures that will force them to migrate to smaller towns and remote places of the earth to hide from their persecutors and tormentors. America's founders maintain an ethical sensibility made manifest in the Bill of Rights. The founders, with Bibles and Korans in their libraries, were cognizant of the religious persecutions of the past including instances of religious tyranny in pre-colonial and colonial times in America. They chose to guard citizens' right to worship in different ways by preventing the misconstruction or abuse of congressional powers. These founders came up with language that would clearly protect freedom of religious expression and worship. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging freedom of speech or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The U.S. Constitution is the oldest still in use. Its checks and balances have safeguarded representative republicanism for nearly 230 years. The establishment and exercise clauses keep a wall of sanctity between religion and state but it may see its mettle tested in the coming years, particularly if the question of registering people according to their religion is pursued. Similar to the forced diaspora of Jews from the newly Catholic Spain, the fate of Nova Scotia's innocent Germans, and the Muslim victims of the Islamic State, the Bible predicts that the United States will again sanction collective punishment— once the establishment and free exercise clauses are gutted, which has begun during the Obama administration, it will prescribe such retribution on religious terms. Once demonized sufficiently, it will be an easy step to begin to persecute the collective group. Though religious affiliation is really nobody's business, someday it will become vitally important to a new regime that will overthrow the existing order and because of fear will enact oppressive measures for some religious beliefs and practices that oppose the prevailing religious ideology. The heavenly sentinels, faithful to their trust, continue their watch. Though a general decree has fixed the time when commandment keepers may be put to death, their enemies will in some cases anticipate the decree, and before the time specified, will endeavor to take their lives. But none can pass the mighty guardian stationed about every faithful soul. Some are assailed in their flight from the cities and villages, but the swords raised against them break and fall powerless as a straw. Others are defended by angels in the form of men of war. That's from The Great Controversy, page 631. Next, Donald Trump and torture. Absolutely, I feel it works, Trump told an interviewer about his views on torture Have I spoken to people at the top levels and people that have seen it work? I haven't seen it work, but I think it works. Have I spoken to people that feel strongly about it? Absolutely. Trump's controversial position in support of torture, including waterboarding and black ops sites, secret prisons that is, goes back to the Roman Catholic Inquisition of the Middle Ages. In another interview, Mr. Trump said he would do everything within the bounds of what you're allowed to do legally, including considering the use of waterboarding. He said that to deal with the Islamic State, the U.S. needed to fight fire with fire. Trump said he would discuss the matter with incoming CAA Director Mike Pompeo and Defense Secretary James Mattis. Republican Senator John McCain, a former prisoner of war, who Mr. Trump famously said wasn't a real war hero because he got caught, remarked in a tweet that POTUS can sign whatever executive orders he likes, but the law is the law. We're not bringing back torture. I'm very confident it wouldn't stand a day in court if they tried to restore that. Theresa May, Britain's prime minister, says the UK does not condone torture or inhumane treatment, and its close relationship with the United States allows frank exchanges on the areas of disagreement. Sonva Skeets, the director of policy at Freedom from Torture, tweeted Trump and said, Torture is morally repugnant. She also said for survivors of torture, to hear the leader of the free world legitimize torture is absolutely devastating. Mr. Trump campaigned on expanding torture laws, including waterboarding. Mr. McCain is wrong. Torture will come back in Western countries. It's only a matter of time. For all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. The papal church will never relinquish her claim to infallibility. All that she has done in her persecution of those who reject her dogmas, she holds to be upright. And will she not repeat the same acts should the opportunity be presented? Let the restraints now imposed by secular governments be removed and Rome be reinstated in her former power and there would speedily be a revival of her tyranny and persecution. That Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, page 381. Protestants are losing the mark of distinction that distinguished them from the world. They're lessening the distance between them and the Roman power. They have turned away their ears from hearing the truth. They have been unwilling to accept light which God shed upon their pathway, and are therefore going into darkness. They speak with contempt of the idea that there will be a revival of the past cruel persecution on the part of the Romanists and those who affiliate with them. They do not recognize the fact that the Word of God fully predicts such a revival, and will not concede that the people of God in the last days shall suffer persecution, although the Bible says, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Signs of the Times, February 19, 1894. Next, liberal churches dwindle away while conservative churches thrive. For all the upheaval and conflict caused by their liberal agendas, churches that have gone liberal in the biblical interpretation are losing members and dwindling away. These are often mainline Protestant churches, and they are in trouble. A 2015 report by the Pew Research Center found that these congregations, once a pillar of religious strength, are now shrinking by about a million members every year. Fewer members means less income, further ensuring their decline. These churches, which include the United Methodist, Evangelical Lutheran, Presbyterian, and Anglican Church and the Episcopalian in the United States, decided that to stem the tide, they would abandon their literal interpretation of the Bible and transform themselves along with the changing times. But that hasn't helped. It has only accelerated the decline. These ideas had an intellectual respectability that on the surface might appear far-fetched to modern audiences. But the liberal turn in mainline churches doesn't appear to have solved their problem of a decline. A Canadian study on churches in Ontario showed that conservative Protestant theology with its more literal view of the Bible is a significant predictor of church growth, while liberal theology tends to decline. The results were recently published in the peer-reviewed journal Review of Religious Research. The study also found that for all measures, growing church clergy members are the most theologically conservative, while declining church clergy members are the least. Their congregations meet more in the middle. Other studies show that nationally and internationally, growing churches have been almost exclusively conservative in doctrine. Liberal churches are far more likely, for instance, to teach that trying to convert non-Christians to Christianity is culturally insensitive, and therefore it should not be done, while conservative churches teach that members are to make disciples of all nations, giving them a model that keeps them growing. Obviously, liberal churches who thought that change was necessary got the direction of the change wrong. Historically, this should be no surprise. It happened with the Waldensees when they joined the Reformation in the 16th century. The Genevan Reformers were far more liberal than the Waldensees, so when they adopted their theology and practices, they lost their spiritual vitality. The Bible provides a prophetic formula for end-time success. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Revelation 14, verse 6. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support, and until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.